0: Hey friends, this is another episode of the South Bend City Church podcast with a teaching from Philippians, which is the text that we are working through. Uh, we've chosen this text because during, during COVID-19, it seems important to be shepherded or pastored uh, by a text that speaks with wisdom about how it is that we find joy and well-being while all of our pursuits have been frustrated by circumstances that we did not ask for. Uh, in the meantime, uh, and more urgently, we are also uh, living with the reckoning right now of racial injustice that has been brought to the surface by the murder of George Floyd. And um, there's much more to be said about this. And in the teaching, you will hear this addressed uh, briefly. I mean, you'll you'll hear it um, turned to, but there, there's so much more to say. And this will be ongoing work for our community in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, that we, as a community who preaches everyone an icon, every human being, a bearer of the sacred image of God, that we as a community will then turn our attention to the unique and and evil ways that our world, uh, the one that we have built, the way that our world disparages the, the sacred worth of black and brown bodies. And so uh, there's a lot of work ahead for us, but today um, may we weep with those who weep. And may we stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters of color. May we see the truth. Uh, May our eyes be opened. Uh, May we be brave about what it takes for us to right these wrongs. And um, may we follow Jesus into the grace and peace that he calls us to, which is not cheap or easy, uh, but it is good and beautiful if we will follow him into it. Uh, So, um, so here's the teaching. Uh, This is the second week that we've been able to offer video teaching as well. So you can listen. However, if you'd rather watch, uh, grab the link in the episode notes, and that will take you to the video version of this same teaching so that you can do that. Um, As always, you can find us on social media live Sunday morning, 930 a.m. Instagram, 10 a.m. Facebook live. And uh, this particular Sunday, we'll be using that space, especially to talk for a moment um, about what it means for us to be a church that actually lives for everyone an icon when some of the living breathing icons around us have lost their breath because of the violence and injustice that has been committed against them i love you friends Um, i hope this teaching serves you really well and uh, we'll see you soon grace and peace cyrus habib is the lieutenant governor of the state of washington And he's made news for a while, really, because he's an impressive person. He's 38 years old, he's Lieutenant Governor. He's the son of immigrants, he's a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, He's blind due to childhood cancer that he survived more than once. Um, People talk about him a little bit the way they've spoken of our former mayor in South Bend, Pete Buttigieg. Just a political rock star who seems to have lots of talent and lots ahead of him in terms of potential. But the reason he's in the news right now is he's made an announcement. And what he's told the world is that he's leaving political life behind and he's doing that so he can enter religious life. And I mean that in a formal sense, he's actually going to become a Jesuit. Now, a lot of people have been writing about this and curious about this. And one of those people is Ezra Klein. Uh, Klein is the founder of Vox. He's a commentator and a blogger. And Klein had Habib on his podcast this past week. And it's really interesting conversation. You should listen to it, it's fascinating. Um, you, you can sort of hear in Klein's questions uh, curiosity, admiration, even frustration with what Habib is doing. And some of what Klein seems to be saying to Habib is, man, like, we need people like you in politics. Like We perceive you to be a person of principle, to be grounded, to be good at your job, to, um, to be doing it out of a sense of service for the greater good. Like, please, please don't leave politics behind because we need people like you. And, and why would you leave all of that behind to go into this very, very different kind of life? And so uh, throughout this very long conversation, Klein sort of pokes and prods to understand Habib's story and why he's made the decision that he's going to, to, to enter religious life as a Jesuit. And, to, and toward the end, after hearing a lot of what Habib says, Klein says to Habib, you've talked a lot about joy in this conversation. You've mentioned spiritual elders that you've admired and the joy that you see in them. And then Klein goes on to say uh, that he thinks there's a sort of foundational mythology at work in our Western culture in the world at large. And this mythology says that if you can get to the top of Achievement Mountain, that when you get there, joy will be found at the top of Achievement Mountain. And uh, he says, like, you know, you think when you get there, you will feel like a winner, you'll have power, you'll have more options, you'll have more money, you might have the partner that you want, you might even be able to use all that status or resource to help really important causes in the world. Uh, But while there's this mythology at work that says that getting to the top of achievement mountain is how you find the joy, it seems Habib is sort of opting out of that whole construct. Believing that joy is to be found, but it's going to be found someplace else. Now, I raise that because, first of all, during COVID, I think a lot of us have found that whatever mountains we were climbing or trying to climb have been disrupted uh, by this thing going on all around us. Perhaps career has been disrupted for you. Maybe some family pursuits have been disrupted for you. Maybe your dating life has been disrupted during COVID, Uh, Maybe your financial growth has been disrupted during COVID. I I don't know. But a lot of us, I think, are discovering there were mountains that we were climbing, and we assumed there was some fulfillment waiting for us at the top of these mountains. And right now, we can't climb them, or we can't climb them the way that we used to. And so I, I think that's one reason that Habib is really interesting right now. But another reason is that he talks about joy being lurking someplace else. And we are working through a text called Philippians, Uh, a letter written to an ancient Jesus community by a guy named Paul. And the letter is saturated through and through, not just with themes of distance and longing, which are there, because Paul can't be with people he wants to be with, which is one reason it's a great text to meditate on during COVID, but also saturated with joy in spite of all kinds of frustrating circumstances. And so uh, my hope is that this text could shepherd us through COVID for a few weeks that we would actually read it like it's really easy to read you can read the whole the whole book in like 15 minutes so i would encourage you to do that just so you don't have to take my word for what's going on on these pages uh, but read it through and through but then also perhaps like to meditate on some of the individual passages and to listen not just to the text but to what the text stirs up within you um, that's the encouragement and today i want to take us a little further into that text by reflecting on chapter 1 verses 12 through 26 and specifically to, to hear the way that Paul, the writer, is finding joy in the midst of a lot of frustrating things happening to him. So let me read this to you and then uh, we're gonna work through it. So this is Philippians chapter one, starting verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know brothers and sisters that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out from my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I don't know. I'm torn between the desire, the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for the prog- or for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Now, there's a lot going on there, but let me just draw your attention to the circumstances that Paul is naming. So at the very beginning, he talks about what has happened to him. And what he's referring to there is the fact that he's been imprisoned. So we don't know where he's in prison. It's not clear from the text or from history that we have. But it is clear that Paul is somewhere in the Roman Empire, far from home, and far from the people that he loves, probably in a provincial capital because the Greek used for where he is uh, suggests that he's perhaps being held in the household of a provincial governor by the Roman guard. So he's imprisoned. He's had his freedom taken away from him. Uh, more on this in a moment, but it seems that this happens because the work that he is doing is proving so disruptive to the order that the Romans are trying to maintain in all these provinces. But anyway, uh, he's imprisoned, which is a, surely a, a scary, demoralizing thing. But that's not the only thing going on. Uh, he also talks about rival preachers. It seems that there are other people who are proclaiming a similar or the same message in the ancient world, perhaps even to some of these churches, but they're doing it out of rivalry with Paul. Like things are getting competitive among the preachers. Now, I don't know if that's hard for you to imagine, if that seems like something that would have only happened a long time ago, let me just tell you, it's very, very realistic. Uh, I've probably like struggled with competitive feelings with other preachers myself, And I know that I've been on the receiving end of some of that rivalry, and it's super weird, right? Uh, When a pastor or a leader or another community views you or your work or your community as competitive or a threat, and so even though perhaps on the surface the preaching looks good, the work looks good, you know, like you got receipts, and you know that behind the scenes there is an agenda there, almost to try to take you out. Uh, This is like taking friendly fire, while you're in the fight. And uh, friendly fire can bring a particular kind of feeling of betrayal. It can have a particular capacity to demoralize you, just to punch you in the gut. And Paul sees that there are rival preachers out there, and he knows that the reason they are preaching is while he's tucked away in jail, they see a chance to get a leg up on him. That's not the only circumstance he names, though. Uh, He talks about life and death. And it's clear in this letter and elsewhere in Paul's writing that because of these imprisonments, where the power of the Romans is coming against him and they see him as a threat, they, they, like he's aware that execution might be waiting for him. Now, I don't know about you, I know that most days of my life, uh, death feels like a sort of distant prospect. Like I, don't, I don't think I'm unaware that I'm going to die and I don't know when it will happen, but I know that I most days don't, Uh, wake up or go to sleep thinking about the imminent possibility of the end of my life. But it seems that that Paul is waking up, going to bed, and living the hours of his day very painfully aware that at any moment his story on earth could end. Now, those circumstances, imprisonment, friendly fire from rival preachers, and and the imminent possibility of his own execution, the I don't know what that would do to you, but I know what it would do to me. I think it would drag down my spirits pretty profoundly. And yet, Paul seems to have this sincere ability to relativize all of that stuff. It seems that his own sense of well-being or joy has very little to do with those circumstances, except the extent to which, even in those circumstances, he sees the things that he believes in and values being furthered, being moved ahead. Uh, He reminds me of of a book that came out a little while ago that uh, sold a bunch of copies. It's called uh, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a... And then the author uses a word I can't use here. So we'll say The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Darn, by a guy named Mark Manson. And it's a sort of counterintuitive self-help book where basically Manson says like, hey, not all of us are going to make it to the top of Achievement Mountain. Not all of us are going to be winners, depending on how you determine what a winner is. Sometimes life is gonna give us lemons, and the real secret to well-being and flourishing is knowing how to not care about the things that don't matter, and instead choosing to only pay attention to the few things that really do. And Paul seems to not care about these things that. I think they would matter to me, but they don't seem to matter to him. But he does care about some other things and he names them again and again and again. And it seems that his relationship with these things is where his joy comes from. And the two things in particular that he names are gospel and Christ. He says it all over this letter and in the text that I just read to you, like, hey, this stuff doesn't matter. If anything, it's good because the gospel is going forward. Or this stuff doesn't matter as long as Christ is preached or as long as we participate in Christ together or as long as I can come and be with you eventually and share the experience of Christ with you. So gospel and Christ seem to be the things uh, where where Paul's naming where joy comes from for him, as opposed to it coming from the circumstances that might get a lot of us down. Now, we started working on the word gospel last week, and I want to continue to try to open that up a little bit uh, because gospel can be one of those words that like, Christians talk about a lot or you read it in the Bible a lot. But we, we don't always do the work of asking ourselves, does that word mean what we think it means? Are we using it uh, in a way that makes sense of how the scriptures are using it? Right. So last week, we kind of began to open that. And I, I mentioned that if you're going to ask, what does the gospel mean, you might start by turning to the gospel according to Matthew, and the gospel according to Mark, and the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John. And these are, of course, the stories of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And they treat Jesus's life and death and resurrection as gospel, as good news. And uh, they show Jesus preaching good news. Like Matthew 4 says that Jesus was preaching the gospel. But then it goes on to say the gospel he preached was the good news of the kingdom of heaven or what's translated in other Gospels as the kingdom of God. Like it seems that Jesus is going around saying, God is rampantly available. And and though you might've decided some people are in and some are out, or you might be in, or you might be out, I'm here to say that God is rampantly available, that God's goodness is rampantly available, that God's beauty is rampantly available, that the truth of God is rampantly available. And it's especially lurking in the corners that we might assume you can't find it in. So not only does he preach the kingdom of heaven, but he goes about healing people. And sickness and disease, especially in the ancient world, but not unlike today, have a way of stigmatizing people or ruling them out, sort of making them appear ineligible for the fullness of the goodness of God. And so he goes about healing people, which seems to be a way of demonstrating the heartbeat of the gospel, which is that God is rampantly available no matter who you are or what you've done or what's been done to you or what has happened to you. Now, he doesn't just... um, Heal people, though, he says things like, do you have a poverty within you or around you? Whether it's the poverty within the human heart or whether it's the poverty of circumstance that's around you, I call you blessed because the kingdom of God is so good and generous and available that it can overcome or overwhelm any deficit of experience. So so he's going around saying God is good and God is available and God wants to give God's self to you. And this seems to be the beginning of how the New Testament talks about the gospel or the good news. But of course, uh, there's more to this, right? Because if God is really available for anyone and for everyone, well, that has a way of disrupting the neat and tidy ways of ordering the world where we have decided who is in and who is out, and we have decided who will be the winners and who will be the losers. So this isn't just like an individual word for individual people. It's also a word about the possibility of ordering our world in a way that lifts up everyone in a way that honors the dignity of everyone. Because God is willing to give God's self to everyone, well then we ought to build a world that honors the dignity of everyone. So this perhaps starts with a deeply personal message, but it quickly begins to say something about the world that we are building. Well, in the meantime, Paul, who was called Saul at the time, Saul begins persecuting the movement that Jesus began. He starts going around to the these early churches and he's rounding them up and he's committing threats of violence against them. And he does this because I think Paul is a guy that has a very neat and tidy way of ordering the world. He's very clear on who's right and who's wrong and who's in and who's out. And this Jesus message, this gospel is threatening that way of seeing the world. So he decides to persecute it until one day on the road to Damascus, he is confronted by Christ. Christ, um, speaking with the voice of God, meets him on the road. And I think this is the moment when everything blows up for Paul. Because, of course, the Christ that speaks to him is the crucified Christ. Because Jesus, in his life, submitted to and was willing to become like the very symbol of the places and the people where we have ruled God out. He did that when he allowed himself to be crucified. Crucifixion for the Romans was a a powerful demonstration that you have run afoul of the powers that be, and we are going to put you down. But for the Jewish people, crucifixion brought with it a sense of curse because they have in their scriptures uh, an assessment that a man who hangs on a tree, and this became interpreted as a man who hangs on a cross, is cursed of God, which is to say that God has abandoned that place or that person. So this Jesus has become the very location, the very stigma of a place where God has abandoned everything, only to be resurrected, which is about as powerful a demonstration as you can get that God is with this person. So Jesus becomes the paradox, of of curse and Christ, of curse and anointed one, of the absence of God and the presence of God. And then that paradox meets Paul on the road to Damascus and the crucified Christ, who I'm I'm sure Paul until that moment had looked at as the the peak example of where we know that God isn't. And, And that voice speaks with the voice of God itself and says, why are you persecuting me? And it seems that in that moment, all of Paul's categories get blown up. Now, it's interesting, he's confronted and he's convicted by this encounter, but he's not condemned. The fact that he meets Christ in this moment, it doesn't rule him out for the work that God's doing. It actually invites him in. So even though Paul might have been sort of justifiably ruled out of the work of God, he he gets brought back into this thing. and, uh, And then he spends the rest of his life enacting the gospel, telling people about the presence of Christ, this mystery of God married to humanity, of a God who suffers and is raised up, uh, of a God who is lurking in all the unexpected places. And so the communities that he builds, he describes as beloved communities where there is no Jew or Gentile or slave or free. Uh, he, He is putting the world back together over and against all the ways that we had divided it, And this perhaps is why he's in jail right now because the Romans have a neat and tightly ordered empire and he is blowing it up. And Paul seems to discover that a life rooted in this message, in this reality, in this work of God who is rampantly available and who is calling us out of our different corners of identity into a shared belonging, like like this message is so good and to be a part of its work in the world is so joyful that imprisonment Not a big deal. Unless we could use the imprisonment to further the message, rival preachers, not a big deal. As long as they're preaching the message, good news. Life or death, not a big deal because either way, whether I'm living for you or dying to be with Christ, my life has gotten wrapped up in this deeper, more beautiful reality than the surfaces that we live for when we are climbing Achievement Mountain and letting the ego drive these fragmented lives. So. so Paul says like, I have joy in the midst of all of this. And, and you friends, he seems to be saying like, remember you're a part of this too. And so whatever circumstance comes against me, don't lose hope. Whatever circumstance comes against you, don't lose hope. But rather like keep rooting your life in the mystery of God, who is uh, giving God's self away to every kind of person and calling us to put the world back together in a way that honors that truth. Now, um, of course, Paul gets put in jail. Because if you live for this, you will be disrupting the status quo. And this is probably just an important moment to recognize that if we are living for this, there are many status quos that we are going to have to disrupt to. And this week, I think um, as clear as ever, one of the status quos that we have to find a way to reject is the status quo. That means that black men have to be afraid that their lives could be ended um, and thrown away by law enforcement officers or um, that black families can be kept pinned down by systemic injustices. Uh, We could go on and on and on, but I I hope it is painfully clear that we have built a world that honors the dignity of white people in ways um, that it doesn't honor the dignity of people of color. And we could go on down the list of um, different kinds of people, different experiences, and different identities that have not been invited into this shared flourishing and belonging. And if our lives are rooted in gospel, if we are discovering the mystery of Christ, then we might have to get a little bit disruptive too. Now, um, the thing about that work is it's hard work. It might feel like risky work. It might be really uncomfortable. There's so much pain. There is um, so much history. There, There's so much darkness there that has to get worked out that to go into this work can be a little bit scary. But the strange thing is I, I have discovered uh, perhaps a little bit like what Habib was talking about when he talked to Ezra Klein. That, that when people give their lives over to this mystery, when they opt out of the structures as we have built them and begin to live for the gospel world that wants to be birthed right now, that there's a kind of joy that we can apprehend that is completely immune to the circumstances that come at us. It's enduring. um, It's powerful. And we could find ourselves stifled in the pursuits of the ego, but not at all disturbed because we know that what we have given ourselves to, what we've gotten wrapped up in is so good and beautiful that like what else could matter? I think that's the invitation of Philippians. I also think it's the invitation of the moment that we're living in right now, whether it's George Floyd or COVID-19. Now, one other note about Paul, and we're going we're gonna to work this out a little bit further uh, later in the text. Um, but Paul seems to be a person who had climbed Ego Mountain really well. Later in the book of Philippians, he writes about his resume. And he says, I've, I've been... Um, I've been able to build the kind of life that looks really good. I've checked all the boxes. I've achieved all the categories, but all of that's been relativized. It just doesn't matter to me because of what I have laid hold of, what I have on my hands now in this mystery of Christ. And Habib, when he's talking to Ezra Klein on the podcast, as, as Klein talks to him about joy and the spiritual elders that Habib is learning from, Habib says, yeah, and when I've been with some of these um, leaders of great gravitas, when I've learned from their lives, I've discovered the joy seems to come from the fact that they've, they've, they're they they free to be their true selves, that they've been liberated from the constructs of the ego enough that they're able to live out of who they actually are, rather than the pretenses that so many of us are are keeping up today, right? So Habib says that, and Paul says in the letter very clearly, like, I've been liberated from this checklist of the ego and the mountains that I was climbing because I found a greater joy and a deeper mystery in Christ. And I suspect that what happened for Paul is that once he stopped dividing the world between the insiders and the outsiders and the places where you could find God and the places where you couldn't, he was also free of the thing that we all do to ourselves, which is that every one of us in one way or another rejects our own true self we run away from the soul. We persecute the truest parts of ourselves because we have a hard time believing that God is here with us too. And, and like uh, like us, a number of great teachers say, like the way you see some things is the way you see everything. And so if we look out upon the world and divide it into who's in and who's out and where God is and where God isn't, then surely we do the same thing with ourselves. And if we can get rescued from that, and begin to develop sort of a gospel vision, like a Christ vision, to discover how God is giving God's self to everything, everywhere, we might also be able to discover that within ourselves. And then we might be able to come home to ourselves. And we might be able to live from that true and beautiful place inside that God has given us. That that loving knowing of who we are that's free from the masks that we wear and the facades that we build and the mountains that we climb. And then, you know, whatever happens, whatever circumstance, whatever difficulty, whatever comes our way, we we might know the joy of living from that deep and beautiful place and inviting others to do the same. So, friends, uh, I I hope you'll let this text um, work on you. It's one thing to read it briefly or to hear me talk about it. It's another thing to sit with it, to to contemplate it, uh, to let this text open you up, maybe to let it interrogate you a little bit. Uh, Ultimately, let let this text be the voice of love. Um, I hope we will ask brave and difficult questions, uh, especially um, those of you who look like me. Uh, Difficult questions about the world that we have built and what we are seeing in terms of the injustices that keep um, inundating the lives of our black brothers and sisters. I hope we'll be brave and and courageous, uh, sacrificial, um, and humble about that work. I hope during, hope during COVID, we'll, we'll keep asking ourselves, like what opportunity is lurking in this difficulty? Perhaps some of the mountains that we were climbing, we never needed to climb. And maybe this is a moment to liberate us from those things. Uh, I hope we'll be together soon, although I don't know when that will be. Uh, but in the meantime, I love you and may grace and peace be with you.